Okay, yep. the story begins. We are on chapter 41, page 492. This is a very important chapter on several accounts. Number one, we're finally going to explore what, how to achieve Kavana. This whole time we were talking about the importance of Kavana, the role of Kavana, the effects of Kavana. Okay, how do I have Kavana? <laughs> Kavana means I am experiencing a mitzvah, not just doing the mitzvah. I'm experiencing reverence, I'm experiencing love. We refer to the reverence and the love as the two wings that carry up the deed. But how do we achieve that experience? And that's exactly what this chapter, and there's 53 chapters in Tanya. So from now until the end of Tanya, we're going to be focusing on various types of kavana, various types of reverence, different levels of reverence, various levels of love, and how to achieve that. And we'll be going through some very practical meditations. This chapter, the very, the first um, from 492 to 496, which is what we're going to be covering today, was actually, you know, many times the Rebbe would encourage people, if you look throughout the uh, personal correspondences of the Rebbe, he would encourage people to actually memorize it by heart. And when people were experiencing various issues, whether they were feeling alone, they were feeling unmotivated or feeling... In response to various issues, the Rebbe would encourage them to memorize this chapter and really um, meditate on it. And we'll soon see why, how it's such a powerful chapter. So we spoke about last week, again, Kavana means love and reverence or um, respect. Those are the two wings. Which one is more important? I shouldn't say more important. Which one is the priority? Because, it, you know, it's very easy to say, love God, respect God. <laughs> but practically speaking, that is a lot of work. So the most practical thing is start with one at a time, right? And here's what he says. The more practical, the, the more important one to start with, ideally, you should love God and you should revere God. You should respect God. But if you were to only have one of them, if you were only able to have one of the two, start with reverence. Here's what he says on the, the first bold paragraph. It's the middle of 492. And here's what he says. But you need to remember always. Now, again, every word in Tanya is unique, is important. When he says always, what he means is always, right? There's certain meditations we uh, studied throughout the Tanya. It didn't say always. <laughs> you know, some of them are, okay, certain times you need this meditation, that, you know, depending on uh, where you are in life. But this one you always need. But you need to remember always the beginning of worship as well as its ongoing foundation and nourishing root, which is reverence, not love. 
We're not precluding the need for love. Love is so important. But it starts with reverence. Reverence is the beginning. And by the way, this is not only true, in, in my opinion, um, this is not only true in our relationship with God, but in our relationship with people. Love is important, but respect has to be the starting point, not love. What is the difference between love and respe respect? Well, you can start by respecting because you, there's no demands. It's like, and love develops at a later stage. So right. In other words, respect start, is more of a behavior. <laughs> yeah. And it's easier a, to control. I think it's that, a learning. Go ahead, Cher. No, no, go. I think that out of respect, you can learn to love someone. But if you love someone, and you only respect them because you love them. It's not, it's not as the, it's not, doesn't have a solid foundation. Right, right. You know, Rabbi Torsky of blessed memory, Rabbi Torsky, who just passed away a couple days ago. Is it, you, have you heard of him? Yeah. Heard of Rabbi Torsky? He was a Hasidic rabbi and a psychiatrist, Rabbi Dr. Torsky. And he gave the famous fish example. Somebody comes up to him and says, Rabbi, I love fish. I don't know why. If it was me, I would have said Diet Coke, but whatever. <laughs> he says, Rabbi, I love fish. He says, what do you love about it? He says, the flavor is great. I love when it's deep fried. This is how I like to serve it. So he says to him, then you don't really love fish. If you love fish, you'd keep it in the water and you'd keep it in its natural habitat. You'd feed it. You'd let it swim freely. You're eating it because you love yourself. <laughs> Rabbi Trisky was like the real deal. He says, you, you don't love fish. You love yourself. If you love the fish, let it swim. The Hebrew, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for love is ahava. And, and every Hebrew word has a root word. The root of ahava, love is hav, which means to give. But love as an experience without reverence, without respect, like Lynn is saying, can be self-focused. Which means if let a person, let's say you loved someone, not you, let's say somebody loves a spouse or it doesn't have to be a spouse, it could be anybody, but let's say you love somebody, but you don't respect them. Then what is stopping you from rebelling, from disrespecting the relationship? One is more likely to dishonor a relationship when Respect is lacking, even if love is present. But if respect is present, if there's an underlying respect in a relationship, the relationship will be honored, even if love is at the moment lacking. That make sense? Well, you, yeah. can, 
you can fall out of love, but do you fall out of respect? It's harder to fall. I mean, you could lose respect for somebody. True. Um, but I mean, that's a good point. But but respect is, I'll tell you the difference. Love feels good. And, and, and by the way, we're not anti-love. Love is very important. And I, you can almost, almost, not quite, but almost say that there's a need for love. You know, God commands us to love him. But love is about how I feel. Respect is about how you feel, me honoring how you feel. So love is me honoring how I feel about you. Respect is me honoring how you feel. You see the difference? Love yeah, is focused I inward. Respect is focused outward, which means it's putting ourselves aside. I think that's why it, it's easier to respect somebody who thinks and behaves similarly as you. Um, you know, it, 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 if somebody has very divergent uh, opinions and they're, and they're not respectful of yours, um, it, it, it's difficult to, to look past that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's always right. easier when, when, you, when you think and behave similarly right. to somebody else. Right. You know, I, I was I was coupling I was counseling that couple today. Quite challenging, and one thing I I noticed, and I, I don't ascribe blame. I'm just more um more I'm saying this more from an observational point of view. Is he he the husband was very much focused on his love for his wife just beautiful, but not on respect, which means he knows how she makes him feel. And in this particular era that they're going through, <laughs> not very good, but he doesn't really know how she feels, what her values are, what her opinions are, what her desires are. And honors those, because you know, that's essentially what respect is. It's it, respect is in a sense accepting, accepting a person, accepting who they are. Right, I can accept that. It's definitely going to be easier when when they're very similar. <laughs> um, but let's plug this back into our relationship with God. There's love. Who's my passion for God? And what that might include, and there's various levels of love, and we'll talk about that later, not today, but in a few chapters from now. But then there is my relationship. Then there is me accepting God's values and honoring him. Respect might be a little bit more cold, if you will. Reverence might be a little bit more cold. Reverence is pretty difficult, pretty deep, though because it requires almost putting ourselves aside. And that's why he says on the top of 493, uh, the very first bold paragraph, top of 493, it's not sufficient to awaken love alone to do good. 
And before awakening love, you first need to awaken, if not a profound reverence resulting from inner meditative work, then at least the innate reverence found dormant in the heart of all of Israel. This basic reverence being not to act in some in tongue twister, warning, in <laughs> in some okay. Who wants to read that word for me? Insubordinately. There we go. Okay, <laughs> towards the king, king of kings, the blessed one. They don't teach us these words in yeshiva, um, <laughs> but the the core of keeping the relate of honoring a relationship is respect. Making that relationship meaningful might be love. But the relationship can't be meaningful if it's not honored, if it's not treated as sacred. When respect means I treat this as sacred no matter what. And it's the same in our relationship with God. I'm going to treat this relationship as sacred no matter what, no matter the circumstance. So if God is telling me to do something, I respect him, his values, his desires, his mitzvahs are sacred. And if they're sacred, I believe they're sacred because I respect him. I have to do them, even if I'm not in the mood. Love means I want to do this. I got to do this. This feels good. This is blissful. And that's important. It's important to get to that level. And we will try to get to that level. But the core is honoring them, treating them as sacred. Now, I should mention, though, if you look back, again, every word in Tanya is relevant. If you look back to the beginning, the, the first paragraph we read on 492, I'm going to read it again because there's something important here. You need to remember always that the beginning of worship, right, is reverence, is respect. It's only the beginning. It needs to carry out throughout the relationship, but it, it shouldn't end with reverence. It starts with reverence. It should end with love. But the start, if we're looking for a starting point in our relationship with God and having kavanan, being intentional in the relationship, it starts with reverence. Or respect. I'm using those words interchangeably. Because respect means it's not about me. It's about whom I'm respecting. It's about the relationship. Any thoughts, comments, controversy? It's just growing the relationship. At the end, you learn to love. And you'll be part of it and you'll, it will be meaningful to you. And if you right. get bonus. Right. Right. So... It, it, yeah, yeah, go for it. So he was sort of a little lighter. I mean, what you'd read afterwards, he, you're saying respect is innate. It, it is there always. I mean, is what with a human, we respect people who've earned respect. Right. And with God, <laughs> how do we even judge that? I mean, that, it's sacrilegious right. to judge it. So. Right. Very good point. With God, it, the respect can be developed when we appreciate God, but it also, it is innate. Innately, as a Jew with our neshama, we have a natural respect, a natural reverence 
for God. Um, it's there. And we'll talk about how to access it. Um, it is interesting because in a relationship, in a human relationship, it takes two to tango, right? You need to respect another person, but that person needs to behave respectable, <laughs> behave in a way where they can be respected. Um, with God, you know, the analogy that he gives here actually is more of that of a king. You know, we have to just, we have to unconditionally respect him. Um, it, it's not, it's not something that's earned. It's actually, it, but it actually is innate. It's there. And we'll talk about more how it's actually there. Um, we're we're going to talk about now how to access it. I mean, in this chapter. And we'll talk about more in chapter 42 about its innateness. I don't know if that's a word or not. But if it is, you know what I mean? It is now. <laughs> <laughs> Take a look at the middle of 493, the middle bold paragraph. How are we going to experience reverence? So there are two... Um, two vessels, if you will, two capacities in which we can experience reverence. You need to awaken this innate reverence so that it should be manifest openly in your heart. Or if you can't do that, at least awaken some reverence through focusing your mind, which is under your control, to think as you will. We should feel respect for God in our hearts, feel reverence in our hearts. That is very difficult. But if not, we can at least conceptually appreciate God. Sometimes in a relationship, you feel a natural respect, especially when you perceive somebody as respectable and they've earned your respect. It's natural to feel respect. Sometimes you don't feel you don't feel the respect, so you have to think about why you respect them. And when you think about why you respect them, even if you don't feel it, you're going to respect them because you appreciate, there's, an, there's a conceptual appreciation. And if we can't have the emotional respect, we can at least have the intellectual appreciation, intellectual respect. How do we do that? How do we do either of these? So if you look, go to the bottom of the last bold paragraph on 493, the way to do this is by reflecting on the greatness of the blessed infinite one, the greatness of God. Even if not with intense focus in your mind, then in your general thoughts at least. To think about God. Now, what exactly do we think about? We'll talk about in a minute. But it's important to appreciate the power of our thoughts. Our thoughts are so powerful, so powerful, so impactful, I should say, because much of what we feel is actually um, developed by what we focus our mind on. This is a rule in, this is one of the premises of what's called of narrative therapy. I've mentioned this in the past, but narrative therapy is a modality of, of counseling of therapy developed by a 
counselor named Dr. White in the 70s, one of the only non-Jewish therapists in the textbooks. <laughs> and or is that for real? <laughs> what? Are you making that up or is that for real? No, no, I'm making that up. I don't know if it's true or not. But, <laughs> but, but one of the premises of, of narrative therapy is, and it's similar to um, CBT, is that basically we have the ability to cognitively structure ourselves. We have the ability to write our own stories. What we feel is a product of how we see things. So I'll give you an example. If I were, if I were to share with you good news, but there was a miscommunication and you interpreted it as bad news. How would you feel? Badly. Right, you'd feel bad, but it's good news, right? Now, what if I clarified what I meant? No, 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 you misunderstood. Now you understand that it's good news. How would you feel? Better. Right, you'd feel better. And the reason is because what impacted your feelings is not the reality. What impacted your feelings is how you perceive the reality, right? So our perception, our brain, our mind, what we focus on is a tool to shape how we feel. Um, and, and this is why, by the way, in Judaism, we're very focused on we're very careful, I should say, in what we allow ourselves to see. What we allow ourselves, what we allow in our mind, right? Judaism and the Torah tells us that rent should be very high in our brains. <laughs> we have to jack up the rent very high in our brains. And not everybody is allowed in our brain. Not every concept is allowed in our brain. And Sometimes we have to close the window shades, our eyes, to things that are not, that don't belong in our head, because that's going to shape our way of thinking, that's going to shape the way we feel, that's going to shape our attitude. All of this has an impact. Um, you know, you know that saying that the Holocaust, everybody puts pictures of the Holocaust, they have make movies of the Holocaust, they say never forget, and it traumatizes us every time, but we have to watch it. It's interesting. It is interesting and it, and because we've seen everything, but then you got to block your mind out. So I can't get that. That's a that's a tough balance. And and when they go, to, you go to the cemetery, like they give you all the talks and the people who Yad Vashem and all those places, and they go and tell you all the sh the stories. They re-traumatize you every time, and it's like, but you have to remember. And I mean, right. I never. <laughs> it's like. I, you know, I, I look, I get it. I totally get it. I, I would believe, I'm not an expert in that field, but I would believe that the goal should be to educate. Yeah. But well, I, 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 you know, the, the theatrics and, and, you know, can, can make it more, uh, you emotion. know, the museums and stuff. Yeah, it could bring out more emotions. I think that people get passionate about it on the, on the opposite side of what you're saying, Sharon, because there are people today that are saying that it never happened. Yeah, I get people that are people that are making right, so there's an extreme reaction. They're making yeah, it's visceral. They're making it their mission to make sure that the pain that they suffered or their family suffered or whatever doesn't ever get discounted. 
but that space in your brain's been taken up. You can't forget that. Maybe. maybe not us, but maybe the next generation or the people that are don't have that passionate right. connection. I mean, think about it. Our great grandchildren might not even know a Holocaust survivor in person. It'll just be a story. It'll just be something in a book. It won't. It won't resonate. It won't. You, the the disconnect will occur. But we're supposed to. I you, you Jack, you're supposed to block off, but you can't block off because certain things. But, but you're things supposed to remember, so it doesn't happen again. Now, okay. now I should say though, uh, but but look look at the. Um, I, I put it this way, Sharon. Look how well it works. What that shows, though, is how strong our minds are, how impactful our minds are. Yeah, so I can't ever. <laughs> it's like it, ever. It, and we could plug that though. We could plug. We could use that tool in our relationships. When we think about God, you know, it's very difficult to just say respect God, feel God, love God. But if that's something we focus our mind on. Now we have the ability to actually feel it and make God more real. Make God a more relevant part of our lives. And, and that's the idea of meditation. It says in the, in the book Hayom Yom that the idea of our feelings, impact, sorry, our mind impacting how we feel is actually a foundation in the Chabad ideology, in the Tanya ideology. It's really the center. We have the ability to control our emotional environment. And if I'm feeling demotivated, is that a word? Yes, it is now. Okay, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> if we're deja vu all over again. No. <laughs> I mean, if we're feeling unmotivated. Unmotivated, okay. If we're feeling unmotivated, that's better. If we're feeling unmotivated, we have the ability to control, to a, to a degree, our emotional environment by what we allow into our minds, but even more importantly, what we actively choose to think about. And when we think about God, God becomes more relevant. He does. But take a look on what the actual meditations are, because we're going to have specific meditations to think about. And these specific meditations will actually prepare us to feel God. And now that we do a mitzvah, it's going to be a lot more meaningful because we're going to be a lot more present. Not just going through the motions, but, I, but I'm doing it out of a genuine respect for God. Or when I come to pray or when I come to shul or whatever it is, I have the ability to, to be a lot more intentional, a lot more present. And that's what kavana is. And here is the meditations that we provides. Take a look on 494. The first bold paragraph, it's the towards the bottom of the page. It's a two-liner. So there's going to be four different things that we think about. First, think about his supreme power, which he rules over all worlds, upper and lower. So God is the supreme king. Like those, we call him the king of all kings. So think about his sovereignty. Imagine how we would feel before when we're standing in front of a real king. Now, this is very difficult because it's hard to relate to kings. We don't really have kings anymore. 
Um, there was once a chassid who, when he found out that one of the czars passed away, the last of the czars passed away, he was ironically saddened because he said, there's not going to be any more kings. How are we going to relate to the analogy brought in Tanya of the king? <laughs> How are we going to make this tangible? But think about somebody, some sort of ruler. Um, there's a certain reverence. And when I think about God is literally in charge of the world, and not only the world as we see it, but we spoke about, um, we touched upon in chapter 39, the various different worlds, right? Which we called states of awarenesses. And there's different angels in different worlds. And God is in control, not only of our world, but of all the worlds. Okay. Let's take this meditation to the next level. In the next bold paragraph, a few lines down. Contemplate how, number two, all existence is saturated with God who fills all worlds, which means God is everywhere. And how all existence is engulfed in God who transcends all worlds. Despite God being everywhere, he transcends the world. Which means even though he is very much present with us, he is still way beyond our capacity to understand him. As the verse states, do I not fill the heaven and earth? Like it says in Jeremiah. Okay, let's take this meditation a little bit further. God is the king of all the worlds. He's in charge. Even more so, he is present. And by the way, this is very different than a, a, um, a mortal king. Because a king is in charge, but not present. Right? The king doesn't even, a king doesn't even know your name. A president, a governor, a mayor doesn't even know your name, let alone a king who rules much more. But God knows your name, which is quite flattering. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But, so God is the king of all the worlds. He's present. Yet, no matter how present he is, he is transcendent. He's beyond our ability to understand him. 495, let's take this a step further and think how he has disregarded the worship of the upper and lower worlds. In other words, the angels is not what's important to him. The angels and souls in other uh, realities. Giving And in giving the Torah to us, he specified us, his desire to be worshipped as the king by his people of Israel. Despite him being the king over all the worlds, despite him being present yet transcendent, he cares specifically about us. What we do matters to him. I'll you know how we know it matters to him? Because he instructed us to do it. <laughs> right? He told us what to do in the Torah. It must mean that it actually is meaningful to him which is crazy. It's pretty crazy if you think about that. Because let's say a president of the United States, for example, on a, just a smaller scale. The president of the United States doesn't know your name, doesn't care what you do, and they shouldn't. I'm not saying that president should care what you do. They, they, that's not their job. 
but I'm just saying, I'm just trying to simulate an, um, an analogy, a parable, a, a parallel. They don't know who you are. What you do is irrelevant to them. Pay your taxes, right? But to God, everything matters to him. The details of our lives matter to him as a people, right? The next paragraph, the next bold paragraph, a few lines down, a few paragraphs down. This is generally speaking, you have a unique relationship with God due to his covenant with Israel. But your relationship is even more personal than that since God has indicated his desire to be worshipped by you in particular. Since a person must say the world was created for my sake. So it goes even more specific. God doesn't just care about me as part of a part of the Jewish people. He cares about me as an individual. My behavior is relevant to him as an individual. This is a powerful meditation. Imagine if we were to go through this meditation before we open the sitter in the morning, before we pray, or before we're about to do a mitzvah. We think about this. We think about how God is the king of the universe. He created the universe. He rules the universe. And despite his rulership, and despite he's very much present, despite his presence, he's very much transcendent. Despite his transcendence, he cares what I do. It matters to him. It's incredible. It's incredible. There's, a, there's, an, there's, almost, there's an accountability. How could I not respect that? Take a look on the bottom of 496. Before before we move on, any questions or thoughts? Or reflections? So when would you actually do this in the morning? Before morning prayers? Before? You know, I, I like to, I, I think a, a good time I'll put it this way. There's no bad time for this. <laughs> but a good time for it is as you're about to pray, you know, as you have your tefillin on and you're about to start, it's a good way to orient yourself to pray. Because you now are composed and know to whom you were praying. So, you, you know, you feel like you're actually talking to someone, not just reading the book, which is very, that's the default. That's the natural default. Very common. Um, but, but it's interesting because if, if you look back, um, if you look back to 492, the first bold paragraph that we that we read, just see how he opened the sentence, but you need to remember always, he implies that it's, you know, this is something we should kind of have on our mind all the time. Now. You can't be meditating 24-7. <laughs> but the more we do think about it, it will at least be in the back of our minds. And it will be easier to rekindle that feeling, re-simulate that feeling 
if the thoughts are already prepared in our mind. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, this, this whole meditation actually makes, um, makes you believe that you, that you make a difference. So you play the part and you make a difference compared to just doing the action. And it's kind of gets right. you cognitive right for whatever you do. Right, right. In other words, there, there's, there's expectations. Yeah. Which is motivating. Motivating. And it kind of makes your thought pattern right for your action. Before. Right, right. Exactly. It's, you know, imagine a king knew my name and cared how I behaved. Gives you value. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. You know, in years ago, the Rebbe instituted um, a movement and pushed very hard and um, are still pushing very hard to implement this movement into uh, public schools. It's called a moment of silence. Prayer is not an option in public school because everybody has their own cultural background and you can't start imposing religion in a public school. But the Rebbe's idea was start the day with a moment of silence, a moment of quiet, let the children meditate. Now, what should they meditate about? That's not the teacher's choice. Their parents will tell them what to meditate about. And that way it's culturally competent to everybody's respective religion. But it gives children a, a chance to start their day with realizing that there's an accountability and that there's a higher power. And it, it, this was actually, in, I think there's a website, it's called, Mon I think Mon you could Google it, momentofsilence.com or .org or something like that. And um, in many public schools, there's, I forgot what the breakdown was, but in certain states, it's actually mandatory. In certain states, it's encouraged. Um, in certain states like California, it's ignored. <laughs> but um, so it, there are different states. But, but this is exactly what, what the Rebbe had this expect, this vision that this is something we can bring to the world, share to the world. That there's a higher power that's holding me accountable. I have value. I matter. If you take a look on 496, it's the second to last bold paragraph where it says 11th of Nissan leap year right under that. And this line, is so important. Um, this, this is a line that the, the Rebbe actually encouraged children to memorize. So um, amongst other lines throughout uh, Torah, there, are, there, were, there were what's called, tw there were 12 specific verses throughout Jewish literature that the Rebbe kind of handpicked and encouraged children to memorize so they could have those tools in their back pocket. And this is actually one of them. So you go up to any Chabad kid, from the age of five or six, and they should be able to rattle off this, these two lines by heart for you. Is this the Pesukah? What? The Pesukah? Yes, yes. The 12 Pesukah, right? One of the 12 Pesukah, one of the 12 verses. And look, 
God is, and I, I would encourage you to study these two lines actually in, in English and in Hebrew, because it's very powerful to reflect on. And look, God is standing over you and all the earth is filled with his glory. God is present and he's watching you and he's checking your inclinations and your heart to see if you're worshiping him properly. He's literally present. He's right here. If I felt that God was right here watching me, how would that impact my behavior? Be on your best behavior. Be on my best behavior, right? Mm -hmm. I would feel that natural respect. When do we respect the teacher? When they're in the room, right? Right? When they say that the cat, when the cat is away, the mice come out and play. You, you should have your own internal locus of control and you should not <laughs> you should well, well if if we had this realization this feeling that god is always present mm. um we would always be on our best behavior it would be a moot point what would the, the idea that we'd have to think about that he was there because we would know he was there always. Well, well, he, but he is there. We just, we have to know it, right? And you're, you're right. When Mashiach comes and we're going to, and he's going to be here in a revealed sense, you're right. This, this will actually, in a sense, be a moot point. It's a hundred percent. But until that, until then, it's upon, it's incumbent on, upon us to actually, um, Accept the fact that he's actually very much present. And by the way, this is not an invention of Tanya. This is an idea that Tanya is focusing on, but this goes back to Pirkei Avot, the ethics of our fathers. It says, be aware of three things and you won't come to sin. There's an eye that sees, an ear that hears, and everything is being recorded. God is and, and the reason is because, again, God is very much present. When the great sage Rabbi Yochanan of the Talmud was on his deathbed, his students requested that he give them a parting blessing. He told them, I bless you that your fear of God should be like the fear of man. They said, Rabbi, isn't that an insult to God? He said, no, 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 no. If your fear of God was at, or, or I should say reverence for God, was at least to the same degree of your reverence of people, you'd be in a very good place. We don't like to sin in public. That's human nature, right? When we're going to do something wrong, we wanna make sure nobody's gonna see us. Unless we really don't believe it's wrong. But if we do believe it's wrong, then we're, we're not going to do that in public. We're going to go away from people. But if I'm always being watched, if God is always present, and here's what he says, I want to just zone back on this line here. God is standing over you. Not only is he standing over you, the earth is filled with his glory, which means he's standing next to us. He's present. He's watching you. He sees our moves. He's checking your inclinations and your heart. He knows how we feel. He knows what our intentions are. He knows if we really mean it. He wants to see if we're worshiping him properly. I'll give you an example. When we're eating, 
God knows if what we're eating is kosher or not. He knows if we made a blessing or not. He knows if we're eating it with a gluttonous attitude or if we're eating it with the right intentions to be able to elevate it and serve him. He knows all of it. And the more we think about that, the more this is something we focus our mind on, the more we're aware of, the more real it becomes, the more relevant God becomes. To respect God means to treat God as relevant. I'll tell you a great story, two great stories. When I was in, seven years ago, I was in Florida. I was staying at a, at a Chabad house. We went away for Shabbos to a local Chabad house. And... You know, these rabbis, they have so many kids. It's not just the Resnecks, by the way. It's everybody. And they have so many kids. It's <laughs> and they had, he had like a 10-year-old and a, maybe like a 9 or 11-year-old, I don't know, 7 or whatever it was, and kids fight. And one kid complained that the other kid pushed him. The other kid denied it. Now, as a parent, what do you do? <laughs> You, your kid is being accused of pushing. The kid is denying it. Do you believe, do you believe the accuser or do you believe the, the child? Which means you're not believing the other child. What do you do? Honestly, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> um, but what this rabbi did, I thought was so insightful. I, I, you know, I, was, I wasn't even thinking about educating kids at that point. I was 21 years old. I'm like, wow. About 30, 40 years ago. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> so, so what he says to his, to his child was, look, I don't know if you did it or didn't. You're saying you didn't. Your brother says you did. And I didn't see it, but Hashem saw it. And if you didn't actually do it, you have nothing to worry about. But if you did actually do it, Hashem saw and Hashem knows that you did it. So you have to be honest with Hashem. It's not about me. You have to be honest with Hashem. If you did it, apologize. To this rabbi, he was trying to plant the idea in his children that God is relevant. And your behavior matters to Hashem. Matters to God. And if we're conscious that Hashem is really with us and watching us, we're going to be on our best behavior. We had a, when I was in high school, we had a teacher, a, a, actually a principal. He was a Yerushalmi. Yerushalmi means a Jerusalemite. Which means he was from Jerusalem, but his, his father was from Jerusalem. His grandfather was from Jerusalem, going back many, many generations. And I think they even live in the old city. Like he came from a very sheltered Jerusalem, old school background. And obviously exposure is not, exposure to secular society is not something that would be valued in that culture. <laughs> um, at the age of like 15, he goes to Crown Heights to study in yeshiva. This was probably, I'm gonna say 30 years ago, maybe. Yeah, 30 years ago. Maybe a little bit more than 30 years ago, 30 to 35 years ago. He goes at the age of 15, 
16 to study in Crown Heights in Yeshima. And he's walking down the street and he's a Yerushalmi and he, he, he wasn't dressed as a classical, just to give you some imagery, just context, doesn't really matter this story, but imagine a guy with a beard that's starting to fill in, long side locks, payas, because that's how they dressed in Yerushalayim and that's how his father dressed, even though he was from a Chabad family and it's not necessarily the Chabad tradition, that's, that, was what his, that was his familial tradition, a long black coat and a hat, and he's walking down Kingston Avenue or one of the streets in Crown Heights. And in the, there's a shop he walks by and there's something flashing on the corner of his eye and it catches his attention. There's a television in the window. Have I told you guys the story before? <laughs> there's a television in the window and in his mind, he knows he shouldn't be looking at that television. I don't know what was on it, but in his mind, he shouldn't have been looking at it. He knows his parents wouldn't have approved. It's not why they sent him to New York from, from Jerusalem, from safe haven of Jerusalem. It's not something his yeshiva would have approved of. He knows it. I don't know what was on it again, but it catches his attention and he decides to stop and gaze. As he's gazing, a black car pulls by, sees him gazing at the television. The car stops, the window rolls down. He turns around and the Lubavitcher Rebbe is staring at him. He said he ran, <laughs> he ran away. He's a young 15 year old. He, you know, he's not perfect, but he was intimidated. <laughs> he ran away. And, and it, the reason why I say that story is because if we were realizing that we are being watched, watched by God, we would be as intimidated, and I should say respectful, that's, the more, you know, we would have that same feeling of reverence that we would were people to watch us. Now it's very difficult because we can relate better to people than we could to God because our soul is in a human body. And you know, that's where the whole idea in Tanya is that paradigm shift from body to soul and focusing more on the soul. But it starts with meditation, it starts with thinking, it starts with having God in our mind. It really, if you really want to know the truth, it starts with a good moda'ani. Because <laughs> that's the first thing in the morning. Okay, well, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>